1: We can look at our core group of writers and maybe sum up their style and what they bring to the show and how they approach the show based on what we've seen so far. Rod Sailing of course is the master of meaning subtext and telling stories that tell us about ourselves, but some of his best work also comes when he adapts the work of others. And it's here where, if subtext exists, it's not necessarily delivered in a typically sailing fashion, and he can tell us stories that are free to frighten us or warp our minds in different ways. Which leads us nicely to Charles Beaumont, whose expertise was in doing just that, giving us mind-blowing stories that don't fit with convention and often just serve to fracture our imaginations. George Clayton Johnson may be a little harder to pin down, but there is a definite theme of time, how we use it, how our own time is finite, and what we do when it runs out. But how about Richard Matheson? What does he think of all of this, and what is his style? Well, in his book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, Stuart Stanyard Asked him just that. Stanyard asks, What would you say was your approach to storytelling on the Twilight Zone in comparison to Sailings and Beaumont's? And Richard Matheson replies, Structurally, we all did the same thing, which was to start out with a little teaser that gets the viewer interested, and then have a little suspense item at the end of the first act, and then resolving it through the script, through the story, and then finishing it with a surprise ending, or at the very least, some kind of ironic observation regarding the story. Sailing preferred doing message type shows, and Chuck Beaumont went for dark fantasy, and I went for more slightly ironic ideas that usually had a happy ending. They had some kind of ending that was ironic, but hopefully was not obvious during the show. There were a number of occasions when we were able to get a real buffo ending like that one with Agnes Moorhead, The Invaders. That was, I hope, a totally unexpected ending. So will we be treated to a buffo ending tonight? Well, before we find out, let's start at the beginning. When Ruth and Charles Miller lay in bed asleep, they can hear their daughter Tina crying out to them. But when Chris goes to investigate, she's nowhere to be seen. So let's begin our search right now for that little girl lost.
0: Missing one frightened little girl. Named Bettina Miller. Description six years of age, average height and build. Light brown hair, quite pretty. Last seen being tucked in bed by her mother a few hours ago. Last heard, aye there's the rub as Hamlet put it for Bettina Miller can be heard quite clearly, despite the rather curious fact that she can't be seen at all. Present location, let's say for the moment, in the Twilight Zone.
1: First broadcast on March 16th, 1962, written by Richard Matheson and directed by Paul Stewart. Now if you will forgive me, Mr. Stewart's introduction will have to wait a minute while I comment on the sheer beauty of this opening narration. That almost had me out of my chair cheering. Now the character of Chris Miller kneels down to look under the bed and the camera slowly pans from left to right, showing us that there's nothing under the bed. And then, Rod Sailing's shoes stride towards the camera before it pans up and he delivers his opening narration. Now there is a little blooper here in that because the episode was filmed out of sequence, if you look to the wall behind him, you can see the pencil marks on the wall as reference for chalk marks that will be drawn on the wall later on in the episode. But at the end of the day, who cares? Because that is one of the best sailing in the scene opening narrations we've had so far. And not only that, while the wording is quite straightforward, I love that it's delivered so seriously by Sailing. You know, sometimes he has this twinkle in his eye or this sort of wry smile, but this time he's speaking about a missing child, so it doesn't have any of those things in it, and he's setting us up for a mystery with tension and an off-the-wall vibe that only the Twilight Zone can really deliver. So this is just beautiful stuff here for me. So for One Night Only, The Twilight Zone is directed by Paul Stewart. And if we were talking about a different show, we might be referring to him as one of our hardworking actors of the day. Because he made his uncredited acting debut in 1937 in a film called Ever Since Eve, where he was probably little more than an extra. But then his first actual credited role is in the Orson Welles movie Citizen Kane so quite a jump there, and from then on he would cement his reputation as a dependable character actor in the business, and he'd often get cast as heavies due to his icy cold stare. So while he worked steadily from his debut up until his death in 1986, for a period between 1954 and 1964, he stepped behind the camera as a director. And in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, he says, I simply became bored with acting. I'd done all I could with those no-dimensional heavies, so I turned to a far more creative kind of work. Now if we look down his list of directing credits, I think this episode of The Twilight Zone is probably the only thing that will immortalise him as a director. The other things appear to be episodes of pretty run-of-the-mill television shows from the time, and he only directed for another couple of years after this. But despite his passing in 1986, Paul Stewart has another acting credit to his name in a film that was only released last year. And that is the Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. Now Orson Welles began making that in 1970, but for several reasons it was never finished. Now, I won't go into the story of that here because it's a bit off the beaten track, but it is a fascinating project to read about if you ever get the time. And last but not least, our writer is, of course, Richard Matheson. Now, if we count the two stories that Sailing adapted based on Matheson's stories and When the Sky Was Opened and Third from the Sun, then Richard Matheson's contribution to The Twilight Zone is 16 episodes in total, with this being number 9, so it just passed halfway with the Matheson episodes, and there's thankfully plenty more to come. As far as Little Girl Lost goes, how this story was conceived is a well-told tale, so in terms of which Twilight Zone book I'll choose to relay this story from, take your pick, because it's in all of the main ones, and it generally goes like this. Matheson says, our daughter, our older girl Tina, the same name as in the story, was crying, and I went into the room. Actually, the apartment was so small, it was just a wooden army cot she slept in at the time. I felt around the bed, and she wasn't on the bed, and I thought, oh my lord, the poor kid fell off on the floor. Then I felt on the floor, she wasn't there. When I felt under the bed, I couldn't find her. Finally, I found her. She had gone under the bed and rolled all the way to the wall, and that's where I found her. And then, of course, the diabolical writer's mind, you know? After the kid stops crying, you think of a story. And the story he wrote ended up in a volume called The Shores of Space in 1953. And also in that book is at least one more future Twilight Zone story in the form of Steel and you can still pick up that volume or one of its reprints at quite reasonable prices. Now often on the show I will either read the short story that a Twilight Zone is based on, or refer to it throughout our conversation, but in this case I'm going to do neither because a reading does exist that I did a while ago for a very good friend, but I don't tend to read Matheson stuff on the show because I'm pretty sure it's all well in copyright. But in this case, the Twilight Zone version really follows the short story pretty closely. So there's not many interesting differences for comparison, but I will refer to it a little bit later on. Now we're not quite done with Richard Matheson either and we'll come back to him later on as well. So when Ruth Miller and Chris Miller realise that their daughter is gone, Chris decides to phone a friend.
0: Bill, this is Chris. Can you come over to the house right away? I'm sorry, Billy. This is an emergency. Tina has disappeared. No, no, she hasn't been kidnapped. Tina is... Tina's here. But she's not here. Bill, for crying out loud, will you get over here? Hurry. Shouldn't... shouldn't wait. Waker, bill's coming over honey bill he's a physicist maybe he can help us out
1: this aspect of the story can be a little bit of a bump for some people when we try to put the twilight zone into real terms and what we would do in the situation so let's say your daughter is missing you can hear her voice but you can't see her So before you check the wardrobe, before you check upstairs, or in any other room in the house, you call your friend Bill, the physicist. And I think where the bump is, is by mentioning the physicist thing, when Tina has literally been gone minutes, and they haven't even checked anywhere else in the house, it does kind of show Chris presupposing that this is beyond just his daughter being lost, which is quite hard to fathom, if we put ourselves in his shoes. And in a moment, they do a kind of passing of time scene after Chris has called Bill, where they wait for him to arrive. So I do forgive this little bit of clumsiness around this aspect, because they had to get a character there who could reasonably have a bit of a clue as to what was going on and push the plot along. But I just think if maybe Chris had called Bill purely to get him to help looking, and then Bill had turned up and maybe mentioned that he'd just got to bed after being in the lab late or something. You know, it could have smoothed this little bump out a bit. But you know, it's fine. We get over that bump, and I think we're okay from here on in. But before Bill arrives, the family dog goes under the bed in Tina's room and promptly disappears. Now, according to Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, The dog used was named Rags, and this is because in the story, the dog's name was Mags, and because the name was similar, the dog would react when called in the episode. I'm a little confused as to how he words it in the book, to be honest, because it sounds to me like they call the dog Mac in the show, which is actually the name of the dog in the original short story. So I'm not sure where the mags part of it comes in, but if anyone has any clarity on that, do let me know. So shortly Builder Physicist arrives, and he is played by two-time Twilight Zone star, Charles Aidman, who we have met before in a personal favourite of mine, and when the sky was opened. And at this point, who would ever have guessed that he would one day take over the rating duties in the first two seasons? of the 80s twilight zone but when bill arrives he starts to look around the room what are you looking for
0: the opening maybe the opening to what I'm not sure Ruth (laughs) was as if you were going to step on her no
1: In the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery is quite critical of the two actors who play Chris and Ruth, and I'll address that in a little bit. But what he also says is that, as well as Matheson's script, Charles Aidman as Bill is the glue that holds the episode together. And I think I do agree with that, I think he is the most valuable player in this one. There is a danger with a story like this of it just veering off course into silliness, but he is this serious steely presence at the centre of it. And the beauty of the Bill role, I think, which is a combination of Matheson's words and Aidman's performance, is that to help keep this grounded to some extent, Bill doesn't just walk in and say, Well, what you got here is a classic case of 4th Dimension Portal. You know, he doesn't know what's going on himself. He doesn't come in with immediate knowledge of what's happening. But because of what he does for a living, he does come in with some theoretical knowledge of what might be going on. But he's never actually seen it in reality. So what he says is still theoretical with him but he's just got to try and use that combination of theory and guesswork to get through this because it's all they've got. And I think that's just the right approach to have with this character. So I do agree that he is the best thing in this episode.
0: The opening, to... To what? I think, to another dimension. Another what? I don't know if I'm right, Ruth, but I can't think of anything else. Tina must have fallen out of bed, accidentally rolled under it, and gone through. And that's where Mac went too, huh? Probably sensed it. Animals are sharper about these things than humans. He knew she was in there and went after her then why can't we no we don't know what's in there my daughter's in there i know that ruth but we can't no for crying out loud she's right here all we have to do is reach in and pull her out if it was as simple as that why hasn't mac found her yet
1: so the fourth dimension wouldn't be laid out like our world and here we're getting into the kind of mind expanding territory that I love about the Twilight Zone. And while sometimes we may have to give the occasional concession to the show for certain special effects, I think the wall effects are not too bad at all in this one. And Mark Zickrey explains this in the Twilight Zone Companion. He says, director of photography George Clemens arranged that the wall be built with the center section parallel to, but a foot behind the rest of the wall. The wall was then flooded with light to a degree that the separation was invisible. The camera was positioned at an angle to the wall. When Aidman placed his hand in the space between the sections of wall, his hand appeared to go through the wall and disappear. And Clemens does go on to say that there was a scene filmed where the little girl goes through the wall as well, but it didn't end up being used in the episode. So at this point I think this combination of the unknown, Aidman's taut performance, and Bernard Herrmann's otherworldly music is starting to create a wonderfully tension filled episode. So in mentioning Bernard Herrmann's music there, it seems like a good point to step back from our story for a moment and back into the real world. In unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr. prints a letter from Richard Matheson to Buck Houghton, and it goes like this. Dear Buck, I believe that generally speaking I have caused a minimum of problems in the part with regard to my association with The Twilight Zone. I think I have written some good scripts and have been more than satisfied with our relationship. However... I feel that I must at this point raise a brief polite ruckus as to the treatment my stories have gotten in the past year or so. What brings this on, is my admiration for the direction George got on his Nothing in the Dark, which we all saw last night. I feel that I have gotten considerably less on my last three scripts. I thought that Douglas Hayes did a bad job on the Agnes Moorhead story, setting a draggy pace and allowing her to gorge herself on the scenery. And I'm not too pleased either with Young Man's Fancy, as I feel that Bram missed a lot of values, that Alex Nichol was badly miscast, and that Bear spoiled the ending. Finally, I feel that the Buster Keaton show descended into absolute monotony in the second act, and was generally badly directed. And he goes on to request that Lamont Johnson direct Little Girl Lost, and he also indicates his preference for William Shatner to be cast in the episode 2. Now although that was written to Buck Houghton, Rod Sailing himself responded. And he says, I agree with you of course that in many cases you did not receive the benefit of professional direction. On the other hand, a couple of your shows I thought got exceptional treatment. The script, The Last Flight, I thought Bill Claxton did a fine job with. As I recall it, there were a couple of rather ecstatic expository scenes that were beautifully directed. I thought Ralph Nelson also treated you handsomely in the Phyllis Cake and Keenan Wind show. There's no question but that the Keaton thing and the Agnes Moorhead thing were damaged rather than helped by the director. But I do think, Dick, that these are the ground rules of the goddamn medium. Douglas Hayes was the most singularly successful director we used on the series. He only turned in one bad job, and unfortunately, that was on your script. I don't want to belabor this or be defensive about it. I'm only broaching all these things to tell you that we're cognizant of your concern and intent on correcting the problem. And Sailing also goes on to assure him that Little Girl Lost would receive above-average treatment, And Martin Grahams Jr. hypothesises that maybe this is why they brought Bernard Herrmann back in, a real high-caliber composer, to do the score. And such was Bernard Herrmann's profile at this point, that you will notice he actually gets credit before the director on the episode. so at this point in our story Bill asks Ruth and Chris to move around and make a search of the house so while they do that let's meet the couple who play them now Sarah Marshall plays Ruth Miller and she's a British born actor who was born in 1933 who I believe lived in the US from 1939 now she was a stage actor of some note on Broadway winning several nominations and awards. And in terms of actual roles, she has a respectable 71 credits to her name. Now notably, she played Janet Wallace in the Star Trek episode, The Deadly Years, and she went on to a steady acting career up until the mid-90s, with a one-off return in 2012 in the film Bad Blood, which was to be her last role before her death in 2014, at the age of 80. Now her husband Chris Miller was played by Robert Sampson. He too was born in 1933 but he was born in LA and his credits are double those of his co-star. And he was in pretty much everything for many many years. He was a television mainstay with shows like Star Trek, The Outer Limits and many many more. But what interests me most about him is that later on in his career he would, on a couple of occasions, dip into the murkier world of low-budget horror. In 1980, he was in Lucio Fulci's classic City of the Living Dead, and in 1985, he gave a wonderfully ego-free performance in the Stuart Gordon classic Reanimator. Now, in The Twilight Turn Companion, Mark Zickory says that Robert Sampson is alright in a bland way and Sarah Marshall is almost continuously hysterical, and rather than contributing in a positive manner, she merely irritates with her emotionalism and incompetence. Now I personally think that's a bit harsh, because the thing about this episode is that it is 100% in the moment. Apart from maybe one or two moments of passing time, it pretty much takes place real time, Their daughter has gone missing, and that's a terrifying prospect for a parent, especially when the place where she is lost is beyond your comprehension. So I think their reaction to the situation is perfectly natural, and I don't agree that Sarah Marshall is irritating with her emotionalism and incompetence. You know, she and Chris are more or less on par with their level of panic here, He's maybe slightly calmer, but only slightly, because I think the show is really setting up Charles Aidman as our lead with these as supporting characters. And I think in that regard, they do just fine. Because really speaking, nobody gets a character moment as such in this episode. It's all plot. You don't get a quiet moment where the couple reminisce about something that happened with Tina when she was small, or... Something they wish they did, or how wonderful it was the first time they held her. Every line is either their horror at the situation or something to move the plot along. But it's Aidman whose job it is, for the most part, to do the moving along and to give partial explanations for the science fiction elements of it. And I think the couple's role is to ground it, to have these natural human reactions to what's going on, and it works beautifully.
2: (laughs) What my darling?
0: What is this? Chris, I told you what I think. But if she went into this other dimension in the bedroom, and if she's still asleep, then what is she doing here? Chris. If she's beyond our world, her movements might seem to us to be coming from all over the
1: place when the three adults look around the house they come to a spot in one of the rooms where the crying seems to be loudest and true to form bill explains that because she is in another dimension her movements could be putting her all over the place because things don't work the same there and then he tells them to call the dog to where they can hear tina crying so it's a great use of the space they have here and using that fixed point, which may not remain fixed for long, to get Tina and Mac together. Now I watched this show with a friend who doesn't watch The Twilight Zone. I know, people like this do exist. And when they hear Tina crying, they said, That's not a child. She sounds like she's about 20 years old. And to be fair, they're almost right. It's not a child but the voice is from a 32-year-old. Now Tina Miller herself is played by Tracy Stratford in her first of two Twilight Zones. She comes back for the episode Living Doll and she was born in 1955 so would have been about 7 years old by now and this is more or less approaching the middle of a 10-year-long acting career that began in 1959 and ended in 1969. And she only has 18 credits to her name, but within that, she had a recurring role as Maria Massey in the new Loretta Young show. Steve Rubin in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia says that she received only $100 for her role here, but she gets a bit of a raise when she returns for her next episode and gets $450. But Tracy is only one part of the performance of Tina Miller. Because while she is in the other dimension, she is voiced by an adult actor named Rhoda Williams. And she seems to have a longer career spanning from 1937 to 1977. And she has a fair few acting credits to her name, but I feel like a lot of them are going to mean more to an American audience than they do to me. Like she played the role of Betty in the radio version of Father Knows Best but was recast when the show went to television. But there are some more internationally recognisable things too, such as doing the voice of Drizella in Disney's Cinderella, and also doing alien vocals in Star Trek 4 and Star Trek 5, although she didn't actually receive any credit for that work. But to be fair, if I was in Star Trek 5, I wouldn't want any credit either. So does she do a good job with the child voice here? You know, I think she does, but is it perfect? No, it's not, because otherwise my friend, who has never seen the episode before, would never have made that comment. But is it a deal breaker? No, it's not. I think I would have preferred if a real child did it, because I think it would have had a genuinely more scary, creepier vibe to it but maybe they tried that, and this doesn't seem to be documented, but maybe they did try it and it didn't work. I don't know. But what we have, I think, is perfectly acceptable.
0: Tina, take my hand. Crystal, my hand, honey. Take a hold of it. Here. Here. I can't see it, Daddy. Here, honey. (sighs) (sighs) Can you hear me? me? You're right here, pal. Don't move. I've got got to. to. Don't move an inch. I've I've got 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 to find find, her. Let her come to you, Chris. Call her.
1: So against Bill's advice, Chris steps into the fourth dimension to try and get Tina. So the look of the fourth dimension is quite interesting and obviously a production decision they would have to make. And Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. And he writes, Buck Houghton recalled the day the art director entered his office, having read the script, and asked how they were to create another dimension. He showed Houghton another page in the script where it said, Interior Limbo. He asked, What's that supposed to be, Buck? And Houghton's reply was, It's up to you. So the art director went off and created a fourth dimension for the episode. And Buck Houghton said, he broke his neck to make a limbo set. That's challenge and response. That's what the scripts were full of. From the assistant prop man to the cameraman, they worked their ass off. They wanted to do the scripts justice and that made a lot of difference in how the episodes looked. The crew was absolutely thrilled to see how the shows were going to come off. And George Clemens says in The Twilight Zone Companion, We did a lot of it with putting oil on glass and moving it in front of the camera. And secondly, where we were unable to achieve all the results we wanted, we put it in an optical printer. And Richard Matheson said, It was pretty nice. Aidman is a marvellous actor, and Paul Stewart directed it well. It had a nice feeling to it. The fourth dimension could have been a little stranger, but it wasn't bad at all. I was very pleased with it. And I'm pretty pleased with it too. I think they did a pretty good job of selling the disorientation of this dimension here. You know, in the early 60s on a television show, I think this is just fine to be honest. You know, could we do better now? Sure, but I'm perfectly happy with how they do it here. So thankfully for all involved, after being found by Mac, Tina and Mac both find Chris... Who is then pulled back by bill and matheson here adds a little detail that wasn't in the book version
0: what happened i pulled you out how could you see me half of you were still here you mean to say you had hold of me all this time that's right oh bill you know i didn't even feel you say listen why didn't you want me to reach in there and how come I kept telling you to hurry? Yeah. That's why it was closing up all the time you were in there. Another few seconds and half of you would have been here and the other half of-
1: So that detail wasn't in the book. Instead of using the fact that the portal was closing as a device to ratchet up the tension. Matheson puts it in afterwards in the episode as a chilling coda on the whole thing. That not only was Tina only moments away from being trapped in the fourth dimension forever, but half of Chris was too. So the episode as a whole, in terms of its stature and how iconic it is, if it's not at the top of the Twilight Zone's most iconic episodes, it's definitely getting there because it's been parodied enough, it's been referenced enough. And it's certainly in the public consciousness to a degree. The 80s Twilight Zone did an episode called Little Boy Lost, which is in no way a remake, but is riffing on the name of it. And it's also a well-known piece of trivia that in a sense, it has been adapted into a movie. And I am of course talking about its similarity to the movie Poltergeist. And in unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr., Reprints part of an interview with Richard Matheson where the interviewer broaches that to him, and Matheson responds, Yeah, I know, but if I'd sued, I would have been clobbered. Too much money on the other side. Spielberg asked me if he could see a cassette of Little Girl Lost, and I sent him one. He looked at it and then sent it back. I never heard until someone said, Hey, I see they made your Twilight Zone into a movie. Of course, there was a lot more to that movie, but certainly that was part of it. I've said it before, I think maybe Spielberg knows this, and always came to me with some kind of offer that would compensate to repay me, like writing the script for the Twilight Zone movie, or having me as a consultant on amazing stories. As I've said to you before, I don't stand here before you as a Twilight Zone expert, dispensing my wisdom. The heavy lifting has been done by the fine writers on whose books I rely, people like Mark Zickri, Martin Grams Jr, Steve Rubin, and so on. For me this is a journey through the Twilight Zone. And if you think that considering I Don't Watch Ahead and this podcast has been going for 8 years, then it's a long time since I've seen Little Girl Lost. And I did remember it, I remembered the general story of it, I remembered how it ended and I also remembered it not really being a favourite of mine. But one of the best things about this journey is being surprised by episodes all over again. And this time, it pretty much worked for me in every way. Just this wonderfully tight, compact little story, with no fat to trim and nothing wasted. The tension builds and builds as our characters experience it real-time with us and we feel the despair of Chris and Ruth, but we're also thankful for the strength and resourcefulness of Bill, a man who doesn't have all the answers but has enough to make a good guess at the rest. I love the Twilight Zone's cosmic justice tales and I love its lessons, but there's no cosmic justice here. What did these people do to deserve such an ordeal? I don't think that's what this one is about. And as we travel through the Twilight Zone together, I find myself really appreciating more and more episodes like this, and shadow play. these mind-bending tales where the strange things happen for seemingly no reason. And if there is a reason, it's far beyond our comprehension as to what it is. But our tiny minds still try to reach for it. Perhaps it's about the randomness of life, the things that happen with seemingly no rhyme or reason to any person. Richard Matheson's daughter fell from her bed, but then he pushed her into the Twilight Zone. And it's those times when the show really soars, when the mundane or the slightly unusual leaps into the infinity of the Twilight Zone. Things do seemingly happen to us at random, things that we can't quite fathom why they happened. But we can only hope that when they do, there'll be an amazing mutt to guide us back, a brave parent to come in after us, or a friendly physicist named Bill to pull us back.
0: The other half, where? The fourth dimension, the fifth, perhaps. They never found the answer. Despite a battery of research physicists equipped with every device known to man, electronic and otherwise, no result was ever achieved. Except perhaps a little more respect for, and uncertainty about, the mechanisms
1: of the Twilight Zone. So there is our thankfully controversy free episode of the Twilight Zone. But let's have a listen to some opinions about our slightly more controversial last episode of The Twilight Zone in Submitted for Your Approval. I've had an email from friend of the show Jason and he says Greetings Tom, first of all thanks for reading my email on Nothing in the Dark. Even though I said that Sailing wrote it instead of George Clayton Johnson I wanted to email you about A Piano in the House because I believe there is something that most people miss about the episode. One of the common critiques of the episode is the overacting but I don't think it's overacting, I believe it was calculated. The piano's power isn't that it only kicks down the doors that guard your deepest emotional secrets and wounds, but it also amplifies them. Or at least that's how I've always viewed it. Also, these feelings and emotions have been hidden and unresolved for who knows how long. So the victim's psyche has no way of processing the pain and hurt. So it all comes tumbling out. Esther's exposure to the piano's powers Is cut short, so we don't see more of her emotions. On top of that she is young, and the older you are, the longer you have had to bury your emotions. This is why Fitzgerald falls apart at the seams more than anyone. This piano, metaphysically strips you naked and amplifies your darkest secrets, which makes it one of the most dangerous things in the Twilight Zone. I would rather spend the night with mannequins chanting Marsha, take a trip on Flight 33, be hunted by Tina, stalked by Willy, or even face a savage Jack in the Box, or a wish into the cornfield from Anthony Fremont himself, than have to face this piano. Side note, I think that Anthony Fremont's grandparents, or great-grandparents, were Jeff and Comfort Myrtle Bank. It could explain a lot. Wow, that's a good thought. Keep up the amazing work, I love the reading of To Save Man, and the following episode. I hope you get to the sailing celebration in the States, and if you do, I would like to suggest something fun and a little morbid to do on your way over. Download every episode of The Twilight Zone that has to do with airplanes, and watch them on the flight over. I did this once. It's tons of fun and a little creepy. Thanks from Jason. Thank you, Jason. You know, I just thought that was a really cool email, the the way uh, Jason has explained that aspect of Piano in the House, so so I'm glad to read that one because I think it adds a really nice aspect to the explanation of that episode. And as far as going to the sailing celebration in the States, you know, Jason, I might just do that. Keep an eye on it. And this is the thing about my trip to Binghamton, if, if it comes off, which, uh, you know, it, it's looking good, hopefully. Um, I really want to use all aspects of social media to document that, you know, photos on, Uh, The Instagram account, Twilight Zone podcast, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is to to really document that trip in different ways. So, you know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. And thanks for writing in, Jason. Okay, a new friend of the show, Christy, has written in. And it's not about an episode specifically, but rather her story with the Twilight Zone. And I always like that kind of stuff. She says, which came first, the chicken or the egg? This is a question as old as time. I have a similar question for myself. Which did I watch first, the original Twilight Zone or the 80s revival Twilight Zone? I was born in the late 70s so I was a child of the 80s and have an older brother who influenced a lot of what I watched on television growing up, partially because we only had one television and partially because he had great taste in shows. I was and still am a huge fan of television anthology series. I grew up on Tales from the Dark Side, Amazing Stories and the revivals of the Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. As an adult, I have been revisiting the 80s show over the past 5 plus years. I purchased the 80s Zone DVDs about 6 months ago, so I would not have to rely on YouTube to see them all. As I have been re-watching, many are familiar, others I remember almost entirely, and some feel and maybe are brand new to me. Now let me take a step back and talk about the original Twilight Zone. I've been re-watching this series for the past 15 years, mostly during marathons, some on Netflix, and other times firing up the DVD player. When I first started re-watching, I vividly remember seeing The Midnight Sun as a child, and it scared the you know what out of me. I'm not a fan of the heat to this day, I think it's because of this episode. I also remember watching The Silence, and hoping that as an adult, No one would ever challenge me not to speak for a year because I am talkative and would need to do the same thing Mr. Tennyson did to win. Knowing that I first viewed these episodes as a child it made me wonder had I first experienced the Twilight Zone from the original show or the 80s revival. In the 80s I watched many shows that were in syndication so I cannot even be sure if I watched the revival during its original air dates or later in the syndicated run. Knowing how I was first exposed to the Twilight Zone may never be known. But one thing is for sure, I will always be a huge fan of good anthology series. Thanks for listening to my origin story Tom. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and my only disappointment is that I did not discover it sooner. I've been making my way through the library of shows and recently became a member on Patreon. I did this for two reasons. One, your show is great and I want to support it. And two, I want to listen to your take on the 80s episodes. I really appreciate all of the passion and work you put into the shows that your fans enjoy. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Best, Christy. Well, thank you, Christy. That's very nice of you to say, and thank you so much for becoming a supporter on Patreon. Okay, I've had an email from a friend of the show, Jim, and this sort of begins a cross-section of thoughts about The Fugitive, Um, And he says, Hi Tom, thanks for your thoughtful, entertaining and well-produced podcast. I continue to enjoy it in my rotation of podcasts. Recently I happened to watch both To Serve Man and The Gift very close together, part of the Twilight Zone marathon here in the US. And having just heard your podcast on To Serve Man, it was helpful to consider the options of meaning and interpretation. While the ultimate intent of the aliens in To Serve Man became very clear in that story, we don't have the same luxury in the telling of the gift. I want to believe that the motives were much more altruistic. However, we won't know. And unfortunately, the concepts get rather buried in the very dated Hispanic stereotypes in which the story was portrayed, at least by today's standards. But still, both were good stories. I can't really comment on that, I'm afraid. I I can't remember the gift at all, but we'll get there. And then coincidentally, I also watched again for the first time in a long time, The Fugitive, prior to listening to your review of the episode. I have to admit, seeing it again after a prolonged hiatus, I was disturbed almost from the very beginning about the relationship of old Ben with the children, and particularly with Jenny. My recollection of the episode were of a grandfatherly man who was a positive influence in the lives of local children. But with today's sensitivities, the interactions made me very uncomfortable. Like you, if the story was retold today or had been originally written and directed with a slightly different twist such as Ben was a child prince with less emphasis on the bedroom scenes, it probably would all have a different feel today. But I really doubt it was seen through those lenses back then, otherwise it would have been portrayed differently. I still do enjoy the performances of the actors and the fairy tale ending, still brings a bit of a smile. Thanks for what you're doing with the podcast in helping us explore not only trivia around Rod Sailing's great show, but also opening the door to subtexts in the episodes, many of which I believe Rod intentionally included. There is often deep meaning beneath the entertainment. In some similar ways, whenever I listen to recordings of American satirists Dan Freebig, there is also so much social commentary underneath the well-written and performed entertainment, While sometimes the stories are a bit dated, TZ included, the meaning and morals are timeless. Happy New Year, and best wishes, Jim. Well, Happy New Year to you as well, Jim. Thank you. So that's from Jim, and like I said, it's a cross-section of kind of opinion about The Fugitive, and the next one comes from a very good friend of the show, Sasha. And she says, Hi Tom, regarding The Fugitive, which I just listened to, if not for the one unfortunate line in Sailing's ending narration about Jenny, later becoming a queen, the entire episode could still have, for me at least, been about a friendly and platonic affection between the two outcasts. Yes, the fairy tale elements are still there, but it could have been a more modern piece by leaving out the marriage part. I felt it was a real shame that Beaumont Serling, or whoever wrote that ending narration, had to cement it back into a place of traditional gender roles and yes, probably sexual grooming. That all said, I remember being fairly surprised that Ben's real form that we see in the picture was humanoid and not an alien creature, another late reveal in the end narration, and perhaps breaking the teasing rule of more than one twist. I wonder if the overall effect of the episode would read as much more playful and benign if not for this sort of tacked on ending, in which Ben's otherworldly quality is completely stripped away, I'd like to know what the decision making process was here. Was that ending there from the inception of the script or was it added later? Keep up the great work, Tom, and best regards in the new year. Thank you for writing in, Sasha, and thank you for, I haven't read it out on the show, but the the stills you put in your email from that new Twilight Zone book, I will uh, correspond with you about that one. So thank you so much. And finally, for the fugitive discussion, we hear from a very good friend of the show, Katie and she has sent a clip in and I would encourage anyone who, you don't have to be a podcaster, it's uh, much more preferable to hear your voice than me droning away reading your email. so just give it a try, you know, put your voice on an mp3 and send it in like Katie has here for the first time. So take it away Katie.
2: Hi Tom, it's Katie. The Fugitive is one of my favourite episodes so I figured now is a better time than ever to chime in. So hear my thoughts. This is the first time that I ever heard that there was a creepy vibe between Jenny and Ben and I just <laughs> I just think that's kind of funny because this is so not true. And I don't know if it's just because I'm a female and I'm coming from that perspective. I mean, I was a little girl once. I never had a grandpa-grandma relationship and I just think Jenny and Ben's relationship is super sweet and there's nothing not pure about it. Contrary to popular belief, I don't believe this story dissolved into nothingness. (laughs) How about the kids who just didn't run to their parents or tell anyone about the little Martian that popped out from the bushes? (laughs) Unless I just really miss something the past like 15 times I've watched this episode, there's no uncomfortable undertones to me. I can see how someone would, but um, she's in a terrible situation. She's being emotionally abused by her aunt she doesn't really have any friends. Um, whether that me- that's because she was disabled or whatever, um, I think Ben just genuinely cares about her, and he came from a different world. He didn't fit in either, and I think they just came together to be friends. And I just think that's super sweet. I don't think there's anything weird about it. So if Though, that, if that ended up years later turning into a relationship, I don't think that's bad. It wasn't creepy for me at all. I think that Charles Beaumont did a wonderful job of mixing fantasy and science fiction together. And I think this episode will continue to be one of my favorites that I always go back to, um, especially to play in the background. Appreciate you listening to my feedback. I always look forward to your new episodes. Um, thankful for your hard work, Tom. Looking forward to the next episode. See ya.
1: So there we go. There ends that cross-section of thoughts on The Fugitive. So thank you, Katie. Thank you for sending that in. And it's, it's good to hear from you. So thank you for being so considered and thoughtful about this, everyone. Okay, one final email from Michael. He says, I just wanted to drop you a line and relate an interesting coincidence that I experienced today. I only recently discovered your podcast a couple of weeks ago. This surprised me since I've been listening to podcasts for years. Suffice to say, having discovered your podcast, I immediately began binge listening. As for me, I'm 54 and have been watching The Twilight Zone since I was a small boy. In 1983, I bought The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zickri and read it and reread it until I wore it out and had to buy a second copy. When I was in the Navy in the late 80s, I joined the Twilight Zone Columbia House Club, which was a mail order club here in the States. Every month you would receive a VHS tape that contained 4 episodes, 3 if one episode was season 4. Every month when the tape would arrive on my ship, I would gather a group of my shipmates and we would sit around the small television we had and watch every episode. Those were great memories, and only served to strengthen my love for the show. Over the years, I've collected the show in every format. I bought the DVDs when they were first released. They were non-sequential, just like the VHS tapes. In fact, they were ripped straight from the tapes. Later, the DVDs were released by season, and I bought those. Then the definitive collection came out, and I bought those, and finally the Blu-rays. The point is, I love The Twilight Zone more than any other single television show, and your podcast is the best one I've heard. Now onto the present. I started at the beginning and downloaded several episodes onto my phone and then started listening to them. As episodes went by, I regretted having not found you sooner so that I could participate in listener feedback. Well, after a couple of weeks, I came to the last episode that I had downloaded. This is absolutely true, by the way. The last episode I downloaded was a stop at Willoughby. At the end of the episode, you made the announcement that you were leaving the show. Now, because I had started at the beginning, I heard your introduction that you recorded in 2017, so I knew that you had stepped away temporarily and would return eventually. The coincidence I mentioned earlier was this. After the Willoughby episode, I checked the podcast app, and it had downloaded the latest episodes automatically. Because I want to listen chronologically, I deleted those episodes, but I saw the latest one was a fundraising announcement, so I listened to it. You probably already know what I'm going to say. I had just finished listening to you announce you're leaving the show in 2014, and then jumped to January 2019 to hear you replay that same announcement, and so on. This has been a long-winded and rambling note, and I apologize. I'll just leave you with this. You have a new patron, supporter, in me, Thanks Tom for giving me another way to love my favourite show and that is from Michael. Thank you Michael. You know I think we've all been there haven't we when we love something and they keep bringing the releases out and they keep bringing the releases out. But the thing is with the Twilight Zone they always got better didn't they? They were always worth buying that next release for. Uh, but, but even so watching those tapes back in the day on the ship with your shipmates that sounds wonderful. Um, so thank you for writing in Michael and what Michael is referring to there of course is the trailer I played in the episode before this one. Now just a little bit of backstory, over on Patreon at the $3 level, the reward for that level was a show that went out every other month called Strange and Deadly's Television Terror and it was looking at Rod Sailing's Night Gallery and Tales from the Crypt and I did it with a co-host. Now unfortunately my co-host has had to back out for personal reasons, so it left me without a reward for that tear. So I decided to kill two birds with one stone and if you recall, when I left the show back in 2014, there was these episodes that Luke covered and he did a great job and I would never replace them in this feed because I love that they are there as part of the lore of the show. But as a Twilight Zone completist, I would really love to do those stories myself. So to replace that show, I decided to do these extra Twilight Zone podcasts in Patreon so they wouldn't clash with Luke's versions, but they would be over there for anyone who wanted to check them out. But the second thing that I would be accomplishing is hopefully to attract more patrons. Now, I don't like to go on about Patreon too much, but I've made no secret that I'm hoping to get to the 60th anniversary celebrations in Binghamton later in the year. And it would really mean a lot if people signed up to get these extra episodes, and it was a bit of a boost for the Patreon, which does great anyway, um, and I could really save up to go on that trip. Now, and some might say, why would we want to send you on holiday? But I really want to do it as bringing you along with me and document this in podcast form speak to the people who are there the guests at the convention but also the the people there listeners who i would meet who would go there all this kind of stuff i would really like to do uh, something special and post pictures on social media and make it a big thing so if you can't go at least you're coming along with me and you will get some aspect of it there So it's even going to be better value than it was when I did the bi-monthly show every other month with Strange and Deadly's Television Terror because the episodes I'm going to be doing are Tom Elliott reads The Chaser, so I will do a new reading of that story. Then we have The Chaser, A Passage for Trumpet, Mr. Beavis, The After Hours, The Mighty Casey, A World of His Own, and then a season-closer special where patrons will get to contribute to that in some way uh, then we will do king nine will not return and the man in the bottle so it's going to be a year-long event there's going to be 10 episodes there and i will you know i'm not going to just pad it out with two extra episodes i'll give myself a little bit of leeway because sometimes life does get busy so i'll just give myself a little bit of wiggle room just in case but there's going to be 10 episodes of this show over on patreon and like I said on the trailer if it's the only time that you do sign up so I can make this trip to Binghamton then I would appreciate it but you know what I know not everyone can do that so don't worry if you can't so with that in mind I want to thank new patrons and they are Jonathan Satchell and your episode is Jim Moonreads Elegy he's a great reader so I always enjoy that one Uh, Amber, thank you for coming on board, and your episode is A Thing About Machines, one of my least favorite Twilight Zone episodes, but you know what, it's gonna be someone's favorite, so thank you for sponsoring that show. Uh, Jason Zuzio, and your episode is a tribute to George Clayton Johnson. Sandra K. Branson, your episode is The Man in the Bottle. Nick Wakeling, your episode is my review of Twilight Zone Curse of the Stars. Now, if you remember Nick, that, that book was terrible, um, but you know, your sponsor on that episode will be like a warning beacon for the world and uh, it'll keep people away from that dreadful book, hopefully. So thank you for that. Dave, a long time friend of the show, your episode is Mr. Dingle the Strong. Michael Brannan, your episode is the Prime Mover. Uh, Mark Barnhill, your episode is Long Distance Call. That's a, that's a good one. Edward Montalvo, your episode is Rod Sailing at UCLA. You know, you can't go wrong with that one. And Martin Aspira, your episode is The Forgotten Twilight Zone. Now, that's one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. So thank you for sponsoring that. Thank you one and all who have come aboard and hopefully there'll be more next time we do this. So if you want to contribute, go to patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast. If you want to contribute feedback to the show, email me at com, and check out things like the Instagram, which is instagram.com slash Podcast. I put the occasional picture on there, that kind of thing. It's actually going to be the 150th episode of the Twilight Zone podcast next. Now, you know, I thought, am I going to do some big extravaganza like I did for the hundred? And you know what, I'm not, I'm gonna press forward with trying to get some episodes under our belt, you know, because I did hope to have season three finished by the end of last year, but it wasn't to happen. But what I may do is have an interview with an author friend of mine who has written a lot of fiction and is heavily influenced by the Twilight Zone. And she's a good friend and I may do that in the next episode or it may be the one after that, but Just in case we don't do that next time, here's Rod Serling to tell us what's next.
0: And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, we again borrow from the considerable talents of Charles Beaumont, and we take a fast trot on the wild side. Picture, if you will, a man who wakes up in a strange world, knows everyone, knows every place, feels very much at home. The strangeness comes from the fact that no one knows him. Try this one for size on the next Twilight Zone. It's called Person or Persons Unknown. James Arness. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations.